0: Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Amber Ross. Dr. Ross is an assistant professor in philosophy at the University of Florida. She received her bachelor's from Texas Christian University, master's at Tufts, and doctorate at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, each in philosophy. She is also currently a member of the UF AI Institute, AI2, the Working Group on AI Ethics, an advisor for the AAU Task Force on AI Ethics, as well as a developer of the UF Ethics in AI Professional and Workforce Development course. Her work focuses on ethics of AI, philosophy of mind, and metaphysics, with her most recent publication, AI and the Expert, a blueprint for the ethical use of opaque AI. In this episode, we talk about the substance of experience, or qualia, philosophical zombies, if there's anything non-physical about consciousness, or if that's an illusion, And implications of AI in consciousness and trust. Thank you for joining, and here's today's episode. I'm here with Dr. Amber Ross. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. So I was hoping that we could start with your background. What brought you here as a professor of philosophy?
1: Oh, well, thanks so much for having me and coming to talk to me about all this stuff. I always find it really um, fun to talk about with people who are interested, especially outside of a class. so. So I was, I've been doing philosophy for a long time now. I fell in love with it as an undergrad. I think I started doing philosophy much earlier than that. I went to Catholic schools and they're really interesting, especially when I was going because they um, we did theology. So we were really doing things like questions about metaphysics and free will and existence and all of these things. And we just had it under a different title. And I loved those questions. And I always found them fascinating. And I didn't find any of the answers really satisfying. So then when I got to college, then all of a sudden there were philosophy courses that you you could take. And I I just became enamored with it. And I I couldn't stop. So I... It kept going. And then, uh, yeah, UF was um, expanding its philosophy program from a, a master's program to a PhD. And so they were looking for lots of new faculty, especially people who had experience thinking about AI from a philosophical perspective. And I have spent most of my academic career thinking about the nature of the mind. And AI, at least from a certain point of view, is We're attempting to construct an artificial mind. So using the same or similar tools that we use to understand the mind, we can apply those and see how far they go in getting us to understand whatever sort of artificial intelligence we create. And so it was just sort of a, a, a nice and almost seamless transition from understanding how the brain works to try to understand how contemporary AI works. And then what are all the consequences of what we learn about it? Then what should we do about it? That's sort of how I, got, how I got here. And it's been an amazing place to be for the past five years. Uh, the AI initiative has really exploded, and there are tons of people uh, to talk to and collaborate with who always have interesting ideas and come at it from angles that you haven't thought about before. So it's a really great place to be doing what I'm doing right now.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely. So I was hoping we can start with uh, what you worked on a little bit earlier in your career, thinking about qualia. Sure. Um, Could you describe the thought experiment of Mary's room and what you think happens in in that scenario?
1: So this is a famous thought experiment. It was written up by an Australian philosopher named Frank Jackson in the late 70s, early 80s. We were all well, not me. I wasn't around yet. But everybody who was doing philosophy of mind at that time, everyone who's wondering how the mind works, we sort of had this, this notion that experience or consciousness, when we had an experience of of seeing a color, that's really what's happening in, in this thought experiment. When you have an experience of seeing a color, your brain responds in certain ways. But also there was, there's this, uh, the sense that Figuring out exactly how your brain responds to colors, how your visual processing system processes that information, the light waves that are coming from the object to your eyes and your brain processes this, that that wasn't everything that there was to say about what it was to have an experience of seeing color. Especially because around that time, we were starting to create things that had some artificial visual processing to them. Obviously, we're all super familiar with you walk to the grocery store and there's a a photosensitive sensor on the door and it opens the door for you. So there's an extent to which vision has now been replicated in artificial devices. So you could have a scanner that recognized colors, but it certainly seemed that something as simple as the photosensor that uh, opens the door at the grocery store for you isn't having an experience of seeing anything. It just turns on and off depending on how light rays are hitting it at a particular time. Uh, you could also have a sensor that could tell you if the color is red or yellow or blue. but it seems like you know if that's a very simple mechanism, it's it seems odd to think it's having an experience of seeing the color blue when it scans a surface and tells you that that surface is blue. And so it seems like what our brain is doing in a more complicated but still sort of mechanistic way is, to a large extent on a par with what machinery is capable of doing when it registers what color an object is. And there seems to be something more to just registering what color something is when we have an experience of of seeing that color. It seems like we have more than just knowledge of what color we're seeing. There's also the experience. So there's this thought experiment that Frank Jackson came up with and he 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 tells a little story imagine that there's a brilliant person and just grows up in a in a in a world or in a room that doesn't have any color it's just black and white so all all she ever sees is black and white none of the you know rest of the visible spectrum but she gets all of the information we have about what color is and what objects are which colors everything that could be learned through as as facts that are communicated through words, anything that can be learned in that way, she can learn everything there is to know that can be learned that way about seeing color. So we imagine that she has all of this knowledge that you could have that can be represented in words about seeing color, but she's never seen color herself. And then one day she leaves the room and she encounters some object. She's left the room, so it has color. And we imagine that she sees like a bright red tomato. And then as frank jackson told the story when she has that first experience of seeing the color red she learns something according to jackson according to a lot of a lot of people who were discussing this thought experiment uh, she learns what it's like to see red and she also learns that there was something about seeing red that she didn't know before even though she knew all the facts that could be written down or articulated in words. So the idea is that there's something more to the experience of seeing red than just all of the facts that if they can be written down, they can be programmed into something. So any information that you could, for example, give a, a computer, an artificial device, well, you can give that all the information we could possibly give it. And the idea is, that thought experiment shows us that there's still something left out, something that some people characterize as real knowledge that we have just through having the experience itself that you can't gain without having that experience. And there are questions about what does it even mean to have all the facts, to know everything there is to know as a human being? A big part of what it is to be a human is to be limited in certain ways in how much we can take in and, and understand and how much information we can deal with at one time. There is such a thing for us as information overload. So how we're even supposed to understand what it would be to be a person and have all of the knowledge that there is to have about color vision and color experience and what color is. Some people thought definitely she'd be surprised to see what colors are like when she leaves the room. Other people thought, no, if she really has all the knowledge, she really can understand everything that's been told to her, then she knows not just what objects are going to be which color in the world, because we can definitely write that down and make big lists of that with words. That chair is blue, that tree has green leaves, just exhaustive. And so if she really can understand all of that and remember all of that, then when she walks out into the world, she wouldn't be surprised to see that things have the colors that they do. If she has all that knowledge, it seems like she would be able to point to any color. If she understands what is going to happen in her brain when she sees a particular color, then when that event happens, is she going to know that that's what's going on in her brain? Because if she does, then she knows that's what color she's seeing. It's a thought experiment that raises many more questions than it actually answers, but it's given people so much to think about in terms of what is our experience? What all is going on in experience? What are all the different elements that if we really want to understand conscious experience, we need to be able to account for?
0: Mm -hmm. You lean more toward the physicalism side. So you don't believe there's a phenomenological um, (laughs) substance to experience rather than maybe we're limited in our imagination of how mechanistically we can experience reality.
1: Yeah, that's a tricky one. As a philosopher, the way that I approach these questions and try to gain a a better understanding of the world of conscious experience, the kind of conscious experience we have, the kind of conscious experience other creatures have, I approach it from a physicalist perspective. One of the reasons I take that approach is because I haven't found that taking a different approach helps to further my understanding of what's going on in the world and within us when we have conscious experience. There are rules that physical objects are governed by. I mean, not only are there aren't there any rules that would govern non-physical objects? We don't even really know how to start comprehending what the non- Non physical would be. I take a a physicalist and largely um, functionalist approach to consciousness. So I'm interested in seeing how far, how far we can go giving an explanation, increasing our understanding of what it is to be conscious and just limiting ourselves to the tools that we have through understanding these things as something that's wholly physical because anything that's beyond that is something that isn't well understood at this point and potentially isn't anything that can be understood because it in principle doesn't operate by rules so there are no rules to understand without those it's hard to see how we can get a grasp of it. But I like to not only understand things about human conscious experience, but I would like to think that we can learn a bit about what it's like for other creatures to also have conscious experiences. And if we can learn anything about other creatures conscious experiences, it's going to be through what we can observe in those creatures. And what we can observe in those creatures, well, we detect that through our senses. And everything we detect through our senses is physical. So I want to think we can learn about their experiences. And I think we've come a long way in understanding the ways in which other creatures experience the world. And we do that through thinking of those other creatures as physical beings and everything that constitutes that. That's stuff that we can observe. I mean, we don't see what's going on in their brains in the moment, but we see all their behaviors. We see our behaviors. We see how they're similar and how they're different. And I think it's really interesting to try to investigate what our conscious lives are like compared to what their conscious lives are like just with those tools.
0: How do philosophical zombies, what are they? And how do they relate to these ideas of qualia or this intangible substance of experience? So that's a great question. I hardly even want to
1: answer it because I feel like when you open that door and make it seem plausible, then I feel like it's a move in the wrong direction. It brings us further away from understanding. But having having said that... (laughs) A philosophical zombie, as we use it as a tool in philosophy for thinking about consciousness, it's physically identical to a human being. Physically identical, get really technical, technical, molecule for molecule identical. So let's make it as perfect a copy of a conscious human being as it could be. But if we think about that automatic door at the grocery store, we know that some complex processes can happen in the absence of experience, and then the thought experiment of the philosophical zombie asks, well, could a process as complicated as all of the processing that our brain does, which in the ordinary case gives us conscious experience, could all of that information processing happen without there being any conscious experience? We take our notion of automatic reflexive action and interaction with the world from something simple like automatic door opener at the grocery store. And we just make the mechanisms as complex as the human body and the brain and the neurological systems, all the connections between the neurons and all of the different sensory apparatus that the human has. But we try to not allow ourselves to imagine that there is, as we tend to think of our experience of the world, an internal life to that thing. So internally we say internally, but that's a that's a strange word, we can come back to that. But from the perspective, maybe, of the zombie, we say there's nothing it's like to be the zombie. Just like there's nothing it's like to be this desk or the rock outside or the lamppost, there's nothing it's like to be the zombie, although its internal structure is just as complicated and just as reliable and just as effective as our internal structure, which does, in our case, make us conscious. In the zombie's case, it does not make the zombie conscious. The idea is that if we find this to be a perfectly reasonable conception of how an organism could be put together, right, just as complicated as a human being with all of the same interactions with the world that the human being has. But no conscious experience, well, maybe that tells us something about the nature of consciousness. Now, I put it that way. Maybe it tells us something about the nature of consciousness because there are a couple of options. Maybe it tells us something about the nature of consciousness. Maybe it tells us something about the way that we think about consciousness, when we try to understand what it is to be a conscious creature. So maybe it tells us about the thing itself, or maybe it tells us about some preconceptions that we have about what conscious experience is. And maybe those preconceptions don't line up with the world in the way that the world actually is. So there are a few ways that we could go, even if we think that this notion of a zombie makes perfect sense. It can make sense because the world really is that way, or it can make sense because we have these concepts and they don't actually match the way the world is. But given how our concepts work and how we think about consciousness, we can imagine a creature like this. So that is that's that's the philosophical zombie. It has wreaked a lot of havoc <laughs> in philosophy of mind, and not just philosophy of mind for a long time. And I think it's probably due for a comeback. I don't really want to start talking about AI yet, but you know, with things like large language models, generative AI, I think that this notion of something that functions just like a human in terms of intelligence, but there's nothing going on from its subjective point of view is probably due for a resurgence really soon. But people in cognitive science, neuroscience, some of them really started taking this notion seriously. I think out of charity towards philosophers who are also working on understanding how the mind works with the belief that everybody in, in philosophy took this problem really seriously, call it the hard problem of consciousness. Why aren't we zombies? Giving that explanation is supposed to be very different from giving any explanation of how smaller bits and pieces of all of our cognitive processing works to produce the particular kind of consciousness that it does or the particular kind of experience. So you can explain how the visual system identifies colors. You can explain how our olfactory system recognizes scent in our brains. But the big explanation of why it's like anything at all to exist in the world as a human being, that question is supposedly hard in an entirely different way than those questions about the smaller subsystems that all come together to create our conscious experience, Uh, those are supposed to be easy problems. In contrast, none of it's easy, uh, but in contrast, those are supposed to be easy problems. They have probably, eventually, straightforward explanations, but the bigger question doesn't seem to. And then we have to wonder, is it a problem with how we've conceived of the question, or is it actually due to the subject matter itself just not having an explanation? The way that i like to approach things i like to think that if we try hard <laughs> we can come up with better understandings of things at least that's my you know my initial approach and sometimes if we can't we really do find that the problem isn't with the world it's how we were asking the question we just conceived of the world in a way that sure it made sense at the time and so that's always you know that's always an option where we run into to dead ends either it's a real dead end, or we were just going in the wrong direction. And I think this is, it's a wrong direction, but it's really fascinating. Uh, So the idea that now qualia, that's the thing that makes us human beings have conscious experience. That's supposedly what our conscious experience is made of that's lacking in the zombies. Now, like what exactly qualia would be that you could point to in the human being, well, it's typically considered to be non-physical. So it's not the kind of thing that you can point to. It's not the kind of thing that you could detect through any sort of mechanism that detects anything that's, that's physical. Uh, so you'd never be able to observe a difference between a zombie and a human being. And yet in this thought experiment, there is a real difference. Humans have conscious experience made up of qualia, which are the bits and pieces of experience that come together to create our experience as a whole. So that quality of what it's like to see red, what it's like to hear a bird song, what it's like to feel a little bit hungry and a little bit cold at the same time, all of those little things that seem very immediately present to us in introspection. That is labeled qualia. In this thought experiment, we have it, but the zombies don't.
0: I was also wondering when you were talking about the inner world. Yes. Where do you think our abstract thoughts, ideas, where do they exist? Do you believe they exist like on a physical level stored in the chemical networks of our neurons? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's
1: interesting. We think the way that we... The way that we talk about thoughts and the way that we talk about neural activity is very different. Just about anybody past a certain age can understand that other people have thoughts, but they don't have any conception of a person and their brain and neural activity and what that how that all is connected. And so it could be the case, and I think it makes sense that thoughts, if we want to, if we think that When we talk about thoughts we're talking about something that really exists in the world then we're talking about activity that's going on in our brain somehow that's if thoughts are real and if one thought really leads to another because there are real connections between them then those connections are physically instantiated in the brain and it's because the brain is is structured in the way it is at, the, what, at whatever level that thoughts are connected in the way that they are and that thoughts produce actions in the way that they do um, and that thoughts are created in the way that they, they are from you know, sensory information that's coming in and also from the connection between that and other thoughts that we already have stored. But yes, um, that is all activity that's going on in the brain. To talk about our Thoughts as existing in a, in a space, sort of a stream of consciousness, it's really useful metaphor. Because sometimes when we're thinking, when we're talking about thoughts and ideas, we just don't need to think about the nitty gritty details of how they're realized in the brain. Um, to know that you and I have the same thought about where my office is located, I don't have to think about what's happening In your brain, I just have to know that we share that same idea at some sort of high level of abstraction so that I know that we're going to be at the same place at the same time if we say, we'll be here at 11 to talk about philosophy. The way that we often think about thoughts makes them seem like this ethereal sort of mental stuff that has this sort of loose attachment and connection with the physical brain. But really, that's just a very convenient shorthand way of thinking about thoughts. We usually don't even need to, unless things get really interesting and atypical about how thoughts are happening within an organism, we usually don't really need to think about their brain activity at all in order to understand them. And our concepts are all, at the end of the day, aimed at understanding the world and interacting with the world in a way that is good for us for whatever, either biologically good for us, or we have goals as people. So the way that we understand the world helps us to achieve those goals. And our concepts are structured around understanding the world in a way that's useful for us. Understanding how our brains work or what thought is made out of doesn't have a whole lot of use for us until we get really interested in the nature of of consciousness. And then we have to really Kind of re examine all of our colloquial everyday concepts to see if they really, if they're just useful, but they don't actually fully track the way the world is, or they do actually fully track the way the the world is, and we just have a very limited understanding of the world. It could go either way. I'm open to both, but I lean towards everything could be understood, although it might be very hard. Mm -hmm.
0: I also wanted to ask your view on illusionism philosophers argue about
1: the nature of consciousness. And for example, philosophers who think that the notion of a philosophical zombie just clearly, straightforwardly makes perfect sense. They tend to think that consciousness is some property that a human being has, just like we have physical properties of being a certain size and our body having a certain mass Um, and our eyes having a certain color, many philosophers think that the human being also has non-physical properties. And not just properties that aren't easy to characterize physically. Like I have an odd little property right now that you couldn't measure physically from my body, but it's true about me that I have the property of being seven feet away from a soda water, right? That's not exactly a property about me specifically physically, but in big terms, you know, if we include lots of parts of the world, we could still explain that. Quality that I have of being seven feet away from a can of soda water, just by talking about physical things and the relations between them. So, physicalists acknowledge physical properties, the relations between physical properties, interactions between physical properties, all of the physical forces, magnetism, gravity, these things. They're all everything consistent with the laws of physics. Those are the things that physicalists say we have reason to believe exist. Some philosophers think that consciousness is a non-physical property of the human being, which is why a zombie makes a lot of sense to those philosophers, because you've got a physical duplicate of a human being, but it doesn't have the non-physical property. And For a lot of those philosophers, really consciousness, and in particular this non-physical stuff, qualia, which are the components of our rich conscious experience, the character, of it, what makes it feel the way that it does. Call them qualia, qualitative properties, phenomenal properties. That's all supposedly to some philosophers, non-physical, but just as real as any physical property. So it's not it's not like, you know, a, a metaphor which really actually tracks something physical that's happening. It's supposedly really non-physical and and real at the same time. So those philosophers will call themselves realists about consciousness because from their point of view, consciousness is something, is a property that humans have, which is a non-physical property. The difference between properties and and substances isn't isn't so very important, but the substance we're talking about is a human. That's the thing. And physicalist thinks, thinks that humans only have physical properties. Dualists think that humans have physical and non-physical properties. It's a little different from the idea that the mind is a, a non-physical substance. But it still makes it very difficult to explain what consciousness is and what conscious experience is and why humans have conscious experience in terms that, you know, the the physical sciences um, have accessible to them. All right. So some philosophers who study consciousness call themselves realists. uh, And from their perspective, if you don't think that human conscious experience is constituted by these special, phenomenal properties, then you just don't think consciousness exists. But a lot of philosophers think consciousness does exist, and this that's not what it is. That's not what the world is like. Uh, so they think that, for example, philosophers who are physicalists about consciousness definitely think there's a difference, an important difference, between... What it's like to be a person in the world and what it's like to be a rock in the world. They think that pain and pleasure are real and that they exist and that everything that experiences pain and can suffer, that needs to be something that we treat well. Anything that can experience suffering is something that has special moral status. And it's a big difference. It's an entirely different status in a rock. Rocks don't have any kind of moral status. Do whatever you want with rocks unless they belong to somebody and that somebody has, you know, conscious experience and can suffer and they like those rocks as they are. And then you're hurting the person by doing something with the rocks, but you're not hurting rocks. There's a difference even for physical philosophers between things that are sentient, things that have experienced pleasure and pain and tables and chairs and things that you can do whatever you like. There's nothing morally wrong for the chair's sake in just dismantling it, right? But there's something morally wrong for my sake in dismantling me. And the difference is that I can experience that and suffer and the chair can't. So physicalists also believe this. I don't think there's any you know, professional practicing philosopher who would disagree with that, especially if you bring in like the moral difference between these things. So some philosophers who study consciousness are, are physicalists. And from their point of view, consciousness exists, but what everything that exists is physical. So whatever consciousness is, it's not non-physical stuff. Now, so I said a little bit earlier, we have concepts and they help us understand the world. And we develop those concepts in order to function well and easily in the world. But that doesn't mean our concepts always track the world exactly the way the world is. If it's useful for us to understand the world in a certain way, and we're not being too critical about our concepts, then that's sort of how our concept will develop. So our concept of experience, pretty much everybody agrees is, yeah, that doesn't seem like a physical thing. That's something, it's what it's like to have experiences. And we can all sort of introspect and understand that, but we don't know anything about our brains. So it's not the same thing as our brains. And also we can kind of look around at the world and pick out things that have conscious experience and things that don't. And so long as our ordinary concept of consciousness and experience can do that, then in a certain sense, like we're on morally safe ground. So long as we can use our ordinary concept of consciousness and uh, the experience of pleasure and pain to pick out the things that can suffer and the things that can't, then that concept is functioning really well in ordinary terms. It's only when we want to get much more specific and in-depth about just what it is exactly that's happening within an entity when that entity is conscious and is not happening with another entity if that entity is not conscious. It's only then that we really need to take a critical look at these concepts and see whether the lovely and useful shorthand that our concepts were employing, treating consciousness like something that's non-physical and something that's simple. And when you introspect it, it's just obvious to you what your conscious experience is and the nature of it. And that it could be absent or present and all of these things, they just seem immediately knowable from our own experience. So the illusionist is usually a physicalist. And the illusionist says, yes, it seems that way. It does. It really seems that way. But the world isn't actually that way. This is like when you experience an optical illusion. It genuinely seems like that circle is spinning in one direction and the circle around it is spinning in the other direction. That's not how the world is. But yes, it seems that way, and that seeming is robust, and it's replicated in many different observers when they look at this. So yes, it's accurate to say, it's objectively true that it seems that way, but the world isn't that way. And we label that an optical illusion. And it's not that it's not real. It's just that the world itself is different from the way that we conceive of it. And so philosophers who are illusionists think that the world itself is different from the way that we conceive of it. So when it seems to us that we can introspect and immediately understand our experience as something straightforward and simple and unified and something that sort of flows in a stream and has natural connections between ideas from moment to moment, and that it's, may be fully accessible to us when we introspect. It definitely seems that way. And it also seems like that waterfall in the picture is actually flowing downwards, but it's just a painting and nothing is moving. That's okay. It doesn't mean that the illusion isn't there. The illusion is there. And the illusion is something that also we investigate and figure out how to explain. So illusionists about consciousness think that yes, the way that consciousness seems to us It seems to have all of these qualities that the ordinary concept of conscious experience picks out. It's just that the world isn't like that. And so there are several things to be explained. Why does the world seem like that to us? Why does our concept function in that way? And then what's actually going on in the world that is creating conscious experience? Nobody really disagrees that conscious experience is real. They definitely disagree on what the word real means. So, you know, when you see an optical illusion, there are lots of ways to describe it. You look at it, everybody will see the water on the painting and the waterfall moving after They've stared at the spinning disc for however long. The phenomenon is replicable in lots and lots and lots of human subjects. There's a real phenomenon there to be explained. And people who do vision science can explain those uh, phenomena. It's really interesting. The phenomenon is real. But if what we're talking about is the painting on the wall, the water is not really moving. A lot of the disagreement at the end of the day comes down to how we're willing to use that word, real. If you mean that the painting, the paint in the painting is really moving, no, it's not. If you mean it really looks to people like the water is flowing in that picture after they've stared at a spinning disc for 20 seconds, yes, it does. And so it it depends on how you're willing, honestly, to use the word real in that sense. Now, I think illusionism is... Is fascinating. And I think that I think that it's on a good track to understanding what consciousness is, because illusionists are willing to scrutinize our concept of consciousness to see whether that's actually tracking the world. Nothing's held fixed uh, for the illusionists. We're willing to reconsider basically everything in order to try and get a better understanding of how things really are. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's, um, so that's the debate, between the illusionists and realists about consciousness.
0: We were talking a little bit about the different moral status of, let's say, like a rock versus a person because of their consciousness. Do you believe in a spectrum of consciousness? And if so, what is your stance on panpsychism, for example, the idea that consciousness is interwoven into the fabric of reality, of of physics?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I don't think there's anything wrong with that idea. I think it's interesting how that idea sort of exploded at a certain point. So yes, I think consciousness comes in degrees. And we don't have a lot of really great words for describing how consciousness could come in degrees or how to describe one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum and all the places in in the middle. And that's actually something I'm working on, but it's a work in in progress. Uh, I think a lot of people are probably trying to come up with with similar systems that make sense. We have experience, conscious experience. There's something it's like to be a person. Our pets have experiences. There's something it's like to be them. We think with the tool of language to help construct our thoughts, they don't have that tool. So whatever's going on when they have conscious experience, it has to be something that can happen without that tool. So we might look around a room and see things that we can easily label with words. They might look around a room and they still see things. They're not labeling things with words, but they still might be like, there might be objects that have lots of stuff in common for them. So like lots of things that qualify as food, even though they don't have the word food for it, but still they might have something that functions like concepts that they apply to the world and they use them to understand the world. But those concepts are going to be very different in how they work for animals that don't have language versus how concepts function for us. Now, panpsychism is the idea, and it's kind of crept up in in a a few different ways. It's the idea that – and there are a couple of different ways that you can articulate it. And I think depending on how you articulate it, either it seems obviously true or wacky. (laughs) And the way that it might seem wacky is to articulate panpsychism as the notion that everything, every bit of everything, every bit of everything that exists in the universe has a little bit of consciousness to it. And now when you put it that way, that seems kind of wild, but there's another way of thinking of panpsychism, which is just as accurate but it just doesn't sound quite as outlandish, which is everything that exists in the world has the features that are necessary such that when those things come together in the right sort of complex combinations, consciousness is present. Kind of everybody agrees with that one. And that's another way that you can describe what panpsychism is. We, we take our ordinary concept of consciousness and then we apply it to a molecule, Probably our concept doesn't stretch that far. Probably whatever sort of aspect of consciousness, any kind of philosopher who calls themselves a panpsychist is attributing to that molecule is very different from the human degree of consciousness. And it could just be that the molecule has the features necessary such that when it's combined in the right way with other molecules and the right structures and degrees of complexity, you get consciousness. So it's hard to know exactly what to say about panpsychism. On the one hand, it seems like anyone who's a physicalist would find that second way of describing it just obviously true. Now that I did put it that way, maybe not. Maybe there are some, there are probably some physicalists who think that not everything... Has the features that you need, that when you combine them in the right complexity and structure, you get something conscious. And those would be philosophers who think that the stuff that something is made out of, so this wouldn't go down as far as like, you know, electrons, but once you get to sort of like a higher level, if something is made out of, say, biological, like carbon based, there might be, there, there could be people who think that in order for something to be conscious, that entity needs to be carbon-based rather than silicon-based or you know some other sort of inorganic material. So, so there could be people who would reject panpsychism because they think that if the material is non-organic, then it does not have the features and it cannot acquire the features necessary for consciousness. So there are lots of ways to interpret panpsychism. I think it's it's an interesting thought. I haven't found anywhere that's been very fruitful to take it yet, but I do I think that just like zombies it, it, and the Mary thought experiment of what it's like to see color, it does help us to see that maybe our concepts don't quite fit everywhere where we could use the word that's the label for the concept. So we have a concept of consciousness, you try to apply it to an atom, it doesn't fit very well. Even though the words are, you know, the sentence is grammatical, that atom is slightly conscious. The sentence is grammatical, it seems like we can understand what that means, but I'm not sure that I'm not sure that we do understand what that sentence would be. Not unless we really take a close look at our concept of, of consciousness and see what being conscious really means to us and is that something that we could even in in theory apply to an atom maybe maybe it's not right so i think that language plays some tricks on us every once in a while um but when it does i think it opens up opportunities to think about things in new ways and also ways that we might not have been understanding even our own concepts in all that much depth before
0: all right so how do you then understand the difference between consciousness and intelligence, especially in the application of, of AI? Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting question.
1: And I think that a lot of us who work in this area are re-examining our notions of consciousness and intelligence in light of everything that's been happening recently with especially generative AI. I think a lot of us didn't expect that any artificial system was going to be able to produce the kind of output that the different versions of ChatGPT, for example, has been able to produce. Uh, I think that there are a few people out there who saw that coming, and the rest of us were really uh, surprised that that had happened. So how do we understand, how did we understand intelligence, and in what ways Does our concept of intelligence maybe not work for us so well anymore in light of what we see happening in the world? It could be that we use our concepts to understand the world. We may have now run into a situation where we see that our concepts handle the world the way it was six months ago, but now they're not quite fine-grained enough to make distinctions that we want to make between things that are, you know, things that are going on in the world right now. So there's Whatever I've been saying to you while we've been talking, which, given a good large language model, could have probably been produced by also a a large language model if you were having this, I want to put conversation in in quotes there, having this exchange, eh, neutral, having this exchange with a large language model that probably could have produced an output extremely similar to what I have, which is something that honestly seven months ago just seemed absolutely not feasible. But here we are. When we think about intelligent activity, I think we're going to need more concepts to really get a handle on the difference. Because intuitively, there does seem to be a difference between us having a conversation and an interaction with generative AI that can produce text and that that text is about philosophy, right? I'm thinking about stuff as we talk. And the large language model is doing whatever it needs to do to produce the text that it's going to produce. But is that the same thing as thought? I think probably. A lot of people want to say no. But then we need to figure out what it is about thought that makes it something that's happening in the case where we're having a conversation and something that's absent when a large language model is producing a large amount of text that when we read it makes sense. And I think that's one there's the concept of consciousness and intelligence. There's also the concept of understanding. And that one might be kind of useful for us to focus on when we think about uh, these, this generative AI and what it's the output that it's capable of. We have a lot of smart devices, and that might be a really good term for them. I mean, there's a difference... Obviously, between my watch, which is not a smartwatch, and this watch, which is a smartwatch, I can talk to it, and it will produce things that I want from it, which is great. My other watch looks very nice, but it's you know leather and wood, and it's not going to talk back to me. Uh, so maybe maybe there's a good use of intelligence for artificial intelligence, but maybe we wouldn't be inclined to say that the the AI understands what it's producing. It produces the output that when we read it, it makes sense to us, but that doesn't mean it makes sense to the AI. And that might be where the important difference lies. And that difference might become really important when we think about leaving decisions up to AI. Because there are certain kinds of decisions that we might might not be comfortable with a system making that decision unless that system has a general understanding of the decision that it's making. And if understanding that concept, that feature of us that we have when we have conversations and talk about stuff, if that's absent in AI, then we might not feel comfortable with AI making certain decisions, especially ones that, are, that have a big impact on our welfare or ones that we think are morally important decisions, we might want the entities who make those decisions to be entities that have experience in the world and a thorough understanding of what it is for a human being to live a life that an AI, for all of the intelligent output that it can produce, isn't going to have. And it's unclear whether something that's not biologically based could ever have that experience. We can connect sensors to AI. We can have the AI-powered robots that go out there and interact with the world through those sensors. But it will be a an entity with a different structure and a different way of interacting with the world than biological entities do. So as much as we can simulate, which I hate to even think of, pleasure... I mean, pleasure is fine, but pain for a robot, there may be a significant difference between a simulation of pain in something that's built out of the stuff that a robot is built out of, and the experience of pain in a biologically based creature. And that distinction might be an importantly moral distinction. And we may decide we only want Creatures that are capable of actually experiencing biologically-based suffering and pleasure to make decisions that have a big impact on living creatures' suffering and well-being. So intelligence, consciousness, we might need to employ a few more concepts, get a little more fine-grained um, to think about what the, what the differences are between human intelligence and what it is that generative AI is, is doing right now.
0: You also, in your most recent publication, talk about AI opacity and how maybe even if we don't understand their inner workings, Mm -hmm. we might be able to trust them as we do experts, human experts, perhaps.
1: Yes. So that came out. um, So I wrote that. And it came out December of 2022. I had no idea that anything like what a generative AI is producing now was on the near horizon. I was thinking about this as something that we would want to think of and start thinking of now so that a decade from now, maybe when we're encountering a situation like this, we'd have some tools ready. It was sort of like this paper was sort of like laying out an idea for a research program of how we can come to trust the reliability of systems when we don't understand exactly how the systems are doing what they do and what sort of infrastructure could we build that has all of the similarities, say, that are infrastructures that allow science to operate the way that it does so successfully. The idea was that we take a good look at those those institutions. We have in our, you know, in modern, in the modern world, we have not just a, a division of physical labor. We have a division of epistemic labor. You don't need to know everything that there is to know to get all of the benefit that there is to get out of the knowledge that the, is in the modern world. Because we've got science and we have scientists and we have people who specialize, who experts who specialize in, in certain fields, and they have really deep knowledge of that field of specialization. And so they can tell us when a hurricane is coming. We don't have to personally, each of us, know how they do it. But we know that we have institutions in place such that the people who are making these pronouncements, the, the ones who say, this is the time to leave this area, the ones who are making those decisions, and we say, okay, we trust you, so we're going to do that. We're going to trust you with our lives here. Move from here to there. Stay out of the path of the hurricane. There's a giant infrastructure that's allowing our trust to be well-placed in those people. So my suggestion in this paper was examine what that infrastructure is like. What are the features of it that really make it work for us in the way that it does when it's working really well? And what can we replicate of that in AI systems? So can we have can we have multiple really complex opaque ai models working on the same problem and debating with each other and coming to a consensus perhaps or at least getting closer to the truth in way that you know individuals who are experts in a certain field may all think something slightly different um, about some problem that they're working on, but when they when they come together to discuss those ideas, they get closer to the truth because the the truth is what they're pursuing. And so when they see that some other line of reasoning is actually better than the one they were on before, they can recognize that. and then we get you know scientific consensus for things, which is much more reliable than just one individual expert's research and conclusions that they draw from that. And then I was, Thrilled to see that researchers at MIT have been doing this with multiple instances of large language models. So, they published a study back in May. They allowed uh, several instances, or you can call them individual agents, um, large language models. They gave them a question to answer, and they would see how each one did individually on that answer. And then they would tell the AI individual AI agent that, well, this other large language model got this answer. Do you still stand behind yours? And depending on how many rounds of this question and then feedback from other models they got, they were much more likely to eventually converge on an answer that was accurate than any of them were individually to begin with and much less likely to hallucinate when they were informed of what other large how other large language models had answered the question, so this this notion that maybe if we had really complex and sophisticated AI systems and there were many of them, and they were all working on a problem, and they could you know debate that problem the way that the in a way that's like how human experts do that 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 would reliably move those models to. A, a more accurate answer, it's actually turning out to be true already. And that's not something that I thought was right around the corner. So I'm, I'm thrilled to see this happening. I don't think that we're in a place yet where we should rely on any of these systems. But I think we're in a place where we can start figuring out how to rely on the systems and how to, when we place our trust in them, ensure that it's well-placed, even though we don't know the inner workings of the, of the system. So I think that we're sort of,
0: we're, we're now all, all set up to start working on that, which is amazing. So you're excited. Are you concerned a little bit too? Oh, sure. We don't know what we're going to do with this technology, practically speaking. We don't know
1: the impact that it's going to have. We don't know how long it will be. Right now, this technology is widely available, we don't know if it'll always be that way. It might become only available to some and and not others. And then, sure, whoever it's it's not available to will not have that tool to work with. And when you're lacking a really powerful tool economically, it's really easy to get left behind. So I'm concerned about things like that. I'm also concerned over reliance in areas where it's valuable for us not to rely on external sources of idea generation. If you don't exercise a muscle, it atrophies. And it's the same for kids go on summer break and, and they need it, but they haven't been using their brains in the same way that they do while they're in school. And every year they have to start over besides start at a lower level. When you don't practice it, you lose it. And if we start relying on technology technology to generate all of our n- new and creative ideas or even, you know, a good portion of our new and creative ideas, I, I am concerned that we will, we will be worse off than if we just like if with our physical bodies, if we never use them, our health deteriorates we could get other people to do every task that we need them need to to do to keep ourselves alive, but our health will deteriorate. There's something lost when that happens. And we could get um, generative AI to churn out ideas that will pass for human ideas, but there's a cost to that. Um, And I think that, I think that, I think it's really interesting where we are with AI right now. And I think that the more we start to use generative AI, this is going to reveal lots of things about humanity. Like what what are all of the costs? of relying on this. There there are some that are foreseeable. There are probably some that we haven't foreseen yet. But if we do really lean into this technology, it's going to change things. And I'm really interested to see in what ways things change and what that tells us about who we are and also what's valuable about being human. I think that the the existence of generative AI as it is now has a potential to reveal what's valuable specifically about being human in ways that we haven't looked at before because we haven't had to. We might have thought it was in our, you know, creativity and maybe it still is. But maybe there's a specific aspect of that that is uniquely human and has something to do with us being alive literally in a way that these, you know, artificial um systems are not. And so maybe there's something really fundamental there that we've overlooked because we just haven't had to focus on it before because we haven't had it sort of, um, we haven't had that singled out as a feature that's distinct from our other creative output that now generative AI can create a great simulation of. Mm
0: -hmm. I'll give you one last question. Okay. (laughs) Do you... Have any closing words of wisdom or things that give you hope for the future?
1: Oh, this feels like a lot of responsibility. Um, (laughs) Things that give me hope for the future. I'm excited to see what happens next. I don't know where we're going to go with all of this, but it's headed in some direction and it's a direction that we haven't been before. Either it's a direction of a new level of self-restraint in deciding not to develop these tools beyond where we see they would be helpful for humanity, which would be something amazing to see us do as a species. Maybe we've practiced restraint before, but Those instances seem kind of few and far between. Usually if we've made it, we want to use it. It's very difficult to get ourselves, you know, to, it's very difficult to get ourselves to exercise that kind of restraint because we we have this impulse to create and to creatively explore and developing this generative AI is part of that. But then we also have the capacity to recognize when it might be too much, when additional development in a certain direction is no longer adding to our well-being. We have the capacity to recognize that. Now, whether we'll acknowledge it and do something about it or we won't, we don't know yet which way we'll go. But we do have the capacity to see it. In other instances, when we've realized we've developed technology that has the capacity to be extremely destructive, we've forced ourselves to exercise restraint um and we've backed away from it and you know we may find that we are willing to acknowledge those boundaries and that human beings are even better creatures than we think they are and that that we will practice restraint in these areas so we'll just have to we'll have to wait and see and then if you know the technology does explode and uh, become exponentially more powerful than it is now, that's also going to be really fascinating to see. So either way, whatever happens next with AI moving at the speed that it is right now, it's going to show us something about either our nature or the world or both of those things. I'm really excited to see what these next developments reveal about all of it. So that's what. That's what makes me look forward to seeing what happens next. I don't know if that's the same thing as hope, mm-hmm. but I'm excited about it. I don't know if it'll I don't know if things will move in a, you know, all things considered good direction, but they don't always. Hopefully if they don't, we'll recover, but I'm excited to see whatever direction we go in next.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you.